0: This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer.
1: And I'm Stephen Ray Morris,
0: hosts of the PurrCast. That's Purr with three
1: R's. It's a podcast all about cats.
0: We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love
1: them. Each episode we invite a fellow feline lover, comedian, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends.
0: Tune into the Percast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to the Percast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
2: Right, meow.
3: This is the second episode in a two part series. Please listen to the Beaufort County Jane Doe Part 1 before listening to this episode. This is the Fault line.
2: They'll connect those two agencies to talk. Very helpful. Um, they also put on forums where you get together and you uh, you'll present on a case. So we presented this case in 2006 at a Vicap forum um, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So. We'll talk it out. It's it's in VICAP and anything similar, of course, where we do consider a truck driver. But again, a truck driver, serial killer, really, does, really doesn't care how he leaves the body.
3: Interstate 95 is known to us. Again and again, it comes up in our research. That's not so strange, really, if you consider its placement and its sheer size. If you'll recall, It's the highway that snakes up the East Coast, connecting Miami to, eventually, New York State and beyond. The I-95 cases show up in nearly every state along that path, not because that highway is a unique hunting or dumping ground, because all interstates are. But when researching doe cases, we've begun to pay a lot of attention to I-95. In Season 4, we discussed the FBI's Highway Serial Killers Initiative and how they began to identify clusters of unsolved killings along U.S. interstates. They also found that at least some of the crimes were committed by serial killers who were also long-haul truckers. But what about the rest of the deaths? There are so many victims left along America's interstates perhaps because of the difficulties created for investigators. First, distance from the crime scene and from those who know the victim. Second, crossing state lines. We know this complicates both investigation and communication between agencies. Third, victims can remain identified longer, sometimes even forever, if they're far from home. And if they have no fixed address or rarely do, if they're home insecure or maybe sex workers who work at truck stops or a drug dependent, there might not even be anyone to look. There are a few trucker-slash-killers whose names have entered the public consciousness. Keith Jesperson, also known as the happy-face killer. The unnamed trucker who many suspect committed the redhead murders. Oscar Ray Bolin. But for every Bolin or Jesperson, there are two you've never heard of, even though some of them have murdered a dozen or more people. In fact, a trucking industry magazine called Fleet Owner summarized the FBI's findings. There are at least 750 homicides suspected as having been committed by truckers and, quote, about 450 potential suspects, many of them truck drivers. Truckers, though, aren't the only perpetrators that have seen the promise of the highway system. There are plenty of hunters. In California, in the 1970s and early 80s, there was a murderer who was called the Freeway Killer, though that name turned out to be a misnomer. In fact, there were at least three men operating on the same highway independently of each other, all along the West Coast, killing teenage boys and young men. None of them were truck drivers, but they were on the road. They took advantage of hitchhikers and young men who lived on the fringe. Highways are a place to find people on the move. A man, Gregory Bowles, who was actually known as the I-95 killer, he murdered men across three states, men who were not missed for far too long. And there's Danny Hembry, who murdered women in North and South Carolina and dumped their bodies along the state's roads. Other crimes from I-95 are dotted throughout archival newspapers, like a 17-year-old former foster child left in a ditch, or a woman set on fire and left on the road. And when we talk about highways and traveling killers in 2020, we, again, come to the crimes of Samuel Little, By this time, most of our listeners will be familiar with his name. We've discussed him as a possibility in a number of cases, and you'll hear more about his victims, suspected and confirmed, in our upcoming series. As of now, we don't know how many people Little killed. And some critics caution that he could be another Henry Lee Lucas, a convenient way to close cold cases. But if Little's stories are true... Well, he's the most prolific serial killer that the United States has seen. Could he have a role in the case in Beaufort, South Carolina? We've come across no timeline that can place Little south of Arkansas, not in the time period when the Beaufort County Jane Doe was killed. But someone left her there. And as of the year 2000, no leads had come in as to who. The Buford Doe was found off 95, but not by much. Still close enough that her case was reviewed by law enforcement seeking to connect unsolved murders by the roadway. A suspect never floated to the surface of those queries, not at least until one identified himself. This thread begins with an Ohio man named Jason West. He first surfaced in the media in the early 2000s. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, West, who was 28 in 2002, had a lengthy criminal record. His arrests were varied forgery, domestic violence, obstruction, harassment, receiving stolen property, grand theft, violation of probation. He was the kind of repeat offender that doesn't necessarily make the news. That would change, though, in late 2001. And by January of 2002, He was very much the focus of Akron, Ohio media. West was in jail in Summit County, Ohio, and facing more charges in another state. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, that's when he started confessing. Reporters Craig Webb and Stephanie Warsmith reported that West had spontaneously confessed to 29 murders. Quote: four in Akron, four more in Louisiana, two in Alabama eight each in Arizona and Florida, one in South Carolina and two in North Carolina. The Akron Beacon Journal reported that authorities were taking the case seriously. West apparently passed two polygraphs, but there was no evidence. Warsmith wrote in a later article that West began sending law enforcement written confessions after a September 2001 arrest for car theft. And law enforcement spent the next month trying to verify the details of his stories. In yet another Akron Beacon article, Warsmith reported that, quote, 3,000 hours of investigation had been put in, and that included the help of a local anthropology class. Meantime, West had waffled, shifting his story and then taking back and then offering his confessions again. Warsmith reports that frustrated investigators look for the remains of an Akron victim West confessed to killing, that they followed his directions to a spot where he said they'd find a severed hand. Investigators excavated an area behind Roswell Kent Middle School, which is in Akron, and they found nothing. But there were still West's other confessions to review, including the one in South Carolina. As you probably surmised, Jason West confessed to the 1995 murder of the woman we now know as the Beaufort County Jane Doe. When we received the Beaufort Doe's files, we found a report written by Major Bromage, specifically summarizing the meeting he had with Jason West. At this point, it's worth mentioning that Major Bromage actually has considerable training in a number of fields that would make his take on West's story particularly interesting. In fact, according to his official bio, he attended the FBI National Academy in Quantico to take a three-month course in behavioral science, management science, crime analysis, constitutional law, and other subjects. When we visited the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office, We discussed what Major Bromage noticed about West and how seriously he took the confession. Okay, I want to go down a really
0: interesting road that I think listeners would love to hear about. At some point, you had a self (coughs) a self-proclaimed serial killer claim that he was involved in this case. My my favorite part was (laughs) reading your observations about his behavior. And how it was clear to you that he was not being truthful? I think listeners are so interested in that. How do you know? What do you look for? So, can you talk about body language, things well, you do. Body observed? language.
2: I mean, he was excited. One, one, this character, for lack of a better word, uh, was in a state prison in Ohio. Um, got a, uh, you know, he had a seventy-some odd page confession of all these murders he did, and what he probably did is pulled a website and saw all these women that were killed. He just wanted to be that guy, that bad guy, that serial killer. And there are people out there like that. Went to talk to him, and during the interview, he was just—you could tell—he was excited, and he was just talking about how, you know, how cool he was, basically doing these murders of these women. Now he's probably—he may be good for Warner. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's good for one. But he's. he's, he's in talking to him, I, I took a—I took an autopsy picture and kind of, just kind of, just subtly put it out on top of the case file, and he looked at it, and I said so. How'd you kill her? And it was ridiculous what he said. Well, we got a little bit of knife work, and it was just that nonchalant. Right there, I knew she wasn't stabbed. I was like, see you later. So, so things like that. You can, you know, you could you feel when somebody's, uh, they're full of it. This guy was full of it. And uh, I think he's probably still doing time. I don't know what his uh, charges were. There was something, he stole a car. Wanted by other states, I have no idea, but this goes back, I think that's about 15 years ago, quite a few years ago. But that that was one thing. I mean, you could, you got a body like, in this particular case, there was some decomposition that insect activity can sometimes look like stab wounds. So was that a valuable tool to try to vet whether this person was telling me the truth? It certainly was. So, And his mannerism was all off. He was, he was jumpy. He was excited for me to be there to listen to him. And he was, you know, I wasn't excited to meet him at all.
3: Major Bromage also discussed interviewing another individual, this time in connection with the disappearance of Christina Porco, who went missing in 1986. We've briefly discussed her case on our show before and the man that was interviewed about her murder. His name is Christopher Bellow. In this section of the interview, Major Bromage is referencing two victims. First, an Ohio woman for whom the suspect, Christopher, had been charged, and then Christina Porco. He does this to compare the suspects and their crimes, Christopher Bellow and Jason West.
2: Um, I've seen uh, another uh, person in Ohio was picked up for a murder. Uh, It was actually a cold case in Medina, Ohio. And... uh, he was he was dangerous. He was dangerous. He was in a uh, maximum security prison, out of Dayton. Uh, went up. I uh, had talked to the detective who actually worked on that case. Um, her name was Catherine Fetzer. was the was the victim, and uh, her body was never found. Uh, they got some kind of admission from this from this individual, but he had a missing persons flyer from one of our missing persons from 1989. In his personal belongings at his house when they did a search, pretty alarming. Wow, this this may be something. Just going to talk to him, he was all business. He just said I didn't do it, and actually I believed he didn't do it because he was just uh, he was he was stone cold. He was he was a real deal. So you go from one extreme to another.
0: Can you talk about that since When you get a sense about whether someone's telling you the truth or not, is that something that you feel like you've developed over your career? Or is that something intuitive that you already just? Well, I I
2: can't say intuitive, but you develop an awareness of different, you know, I guess, nonverbal and uh, the way they're talking to you, verbal cues. And he was just very deliberate and very matter of fact. Would he have admitted it? Uh, He was doing life already. Maybe he would have. Maybe he wouldn't. I I don't know. But I think that, um, one, I had nothing to tie him up to it other than the fact that he had this missing persons flyer that they get in the mail. So um, that's not enough to do anything with anyways. Other than question him about it, I asked him about it. I couldn't show he was in South Carolina. He was a truck driver. Uh, Definitely. um, Definitely did the, the murder in Ohio. She was never found. So somebody like that. I think there's very little doubt that they're responsible for other things, because he was just, his eyes were just focused, great eye contact. um, Dangerous.
3: Ultimately, Jason West's confessions never went anywhere. No murders were tied to him, though he did face a slew of other charges. In Major Bromage's eyes, West had never been a serious suspect. But... He knew there was one out there somewhere within a 12-hour's drive. So who could have killed the Beaufort County Jane Doe? According to Bob Bromage, you start with the victim. That's no surprise. And you study the few clues her body, left far from home, can offer.
0: Is part of um, the kind of life that it seems like she lived, does that go into... Um, the theory that maybe it was someone who knew her because the well-nourished, healthy... Victimology,
2: let's talk about that. I'm mm-hmm. glad you asked that question. Her victimology, what, what makes her a, a victim? What, what elevates her risk? No drugs, no alcohol in her system, very well cared for, excellent, excellent medical care, uh, very well kept, took care of herself uh, by appearance, um, good teeth. I mean, you look at all these things and say, what makes her a victim? probably a bad relationship, makes her a victim. Domestic violence. But doesn't appear to have been involved in prostitution, drugs based on what we're looking at. So again, it goes towards that educated guess is building a foundation, what makes her a victim. In this case, I would say a bad relationship based on based on her appearance and, and uh, how she died. The strangulation, again, up close and personal, Signs of domestic violence, you know, bruising on the arms, uh, you know, laceration inside her mouth where she was punched. Those kind of things go into play when you're trying to evaluate. So I would say that a bad relationship was the only reason she had an elevated risk for being a victim of a violent crime.
0: Can you talk about what factors make you lean that way, that it it was more personal than just a random?
2: Strangulation is very personal. I think, of course, you're going to have serial killers that do it, but in in this particular case, it looks like an item of her clothing was used. She was also beaten. So there's a certain amount of rage here. That would be the first thing we lean to, but of course, I mean, that's just, again, that's just an educated guess. It very well could be a a serial killer that's involved in this that we just haven't been able to identify at this
3: point. As Major Bromage said, the Beaufort County Jane Doe showed evidence of injuries that would have predated her murder. So could there be medical records, or charges, or family members and friends who might recognize those specific lacerations and bruises? Maybe, but maybe not. Listeners will already know that domestic violence is not always reported, or even known to loved ones outside of the abusive relationship, and... That violence can escalate without the outside world ever knowing. That the most dangerous time for an abused survivor is when they leave their abuser. And that leaving is not a guarantee of safety. Major Bromage's belief that she was abused and then killed by a partner, it makes sense. She was laid out carefully, not dumped, though perhaps her killer wanted authorities to think that she had been with all of her identifying possessions removed. According to one news report, she was face down, too. But she was still wearing her underwear. We aren't profilers and don't pretend to be, but it seems like a strange choice to make when removing identifiers. In 1995, the killer might not have been thinking DNA, but then again, those stories were hitting the news. And maybe he didn't consider that the brand name, Leonisa, would prove to be so important. Even still, taking everything off the body would have been the smart move. Even her earrings were gone. To us, all of that, just as Bromage said, speaks to a relationship with the victim. Her injuries spoke to ongoing abuse, so not a new relationship either. If the killer had at some point been reported for domestic abuse, there haven't been any connections made between the target of his intimate partner abuse and his identity. It's certainly not unusual for a victim or survivor of IPV to have not reported, and for a myriad of reasons. And the National Latino Network adds a few more circumstances to that list that can be unique to recent immigrants to the United States, including, quote, low acculturation among residents, regardless of immigration status. So that can simply be a lack of familiarity with the services that are available to those who are suffering abuse. And those services aren't always easy to find, identify, or contact, especially if one is living in a country where they didn't grow up. We won't assume the Beaufort County Doe's immigration status or her country of origin, but her underwear brand means that various possibilities should be considered. For instance, if a woman is undocumented or has loved ones who are, then she may be afraid to access services. In recent years, there have been protective efforts made to allow survivors without documentation to come forward, but that doesn't change fear. Reporting to police can be another concern, especially if a survivor has had negative community or individual experiences with law enforcement, either in the United States or in their country of origin. All this to say that for a number of reasons, the Beaufort County Jane Doe may not have reported intimate partner violence. We can't say whether she was currently living with her abuser, married to him, still in a relationship with him, or if the child or children she had were also in the home. Any of those factors could affect her ability to report, to leave, to get in touch with family. And Major Bromage believes that that family would have been living outside the U.S., that if they had been inside the U.S., it was likely they would have filed a missing persons report. Still, that can vary. In Season 4, we discussed factions of the group of people called the Missing Missing, people who were missing but not reported, and one such subset were immigrants. If a missing person was without documentation, reporting their vanishing does create a risk. And the reporting itself might actually hold danger too, depending on the family's documentation situation. And if her family was outside the US, another complication comes up too. If the Beaufort County Jane Doe's family was living outside the United States, then they might not have had a way to report her missing at all. They might not know that she was missing, especially if communication had become sporadic or if family members had been displaced. Perhaps her parents had passed away. Maybe they were worried over lack of contact, but were assured by the abuser that the Beaufort County Jane Doe was alive and well. Maybe there had been coerced or voluntary estrangement before she moved to the United States. Perhaps if she was merely visiting, her family wouldn't know where to look for her in the first place. You can go on like this, a thousand different scenarios, but the outcome remains the same. The Beaufort County Jane Doe has not been reported to any United States database. Could she be listed somewhere else? According to the United Nations, there are, quote, 33 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. To the best of our knowledge, there are not nationwide databases in many of those 33 countries. For some countries, especially in Central and South America, At least one part of that has to do with the fact that cataloging the missing can be a daunting task. According to the International Commission on Missing Persons, quote, countries in Latin America face complex challenges related to accounting for missing persons. Several countries are grappling with issues related to transitional justice as families seek to learn the fate of loved ones who were victims of enforced disappearance under former regimes, end quote. The commission points out that there are a variety of strategies that could help increase coverage of Central and South America, including better databases, communication between governments, all factors in improving systems for seeking missing persons, reuniting families, and identifying the deceased. The commission runs their own database for missing persons. They call it IDMS. It catalogs over, quote, 150,000 missing persons, as well as the profiles of living relatives, end quote, and also manages a large range of case data, from the findings of forensic anthropologists to DNA results. But the database has limited access. Anyone may file a missing persons report, but there are no public ways to search that would allow a layperson to go through the files based on age, race, or country of origin. Law enforcement can gain access though, and as of the writing of this episode, we have shared that fact with the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office, and we'll provide updates if we hear about their use of the program. There are databases outside the US. Some pages we've come across are run by community leaders and local advocates, and most of them allow for clicking through photos, in a revolving kind of shuffle, though there often isn't the ability to filter by age or time or other features. We've searched for the Buford Doe on a number of these sites, but we can't call our efforts exhaustive. The missing persons listed on them are a vital start, but are also a very small number, and most are recent missing. Only a few of the cases we saw dated before the 2010s. And again, that's only a fraction of the listings that could and should be there. In Latin America as a whole, there are hundreds of thousands more missing to record, dating well back into the last century. A substantial category of those missing are a group called the disappeared. The people who fall into this category, whom sociologist Carlos Ibarra calls, quote, those who will always be nowhere, they can make the design and application of any missing persons database a daunting task. Scholar Kristen Weld points out that since the mid-20th century, quote, well more than 100,000 Latin Americans were made to enter the netherworld of forced disappearances. 40,000 in Guatemala, between 1,000 and 2,000 in Chile, as many as 30,000 in Argentina, some 60,000 in Colombia, perhaps 6,000 in El Salvador, 15,000 in Peru, and recently over 25,000 in Mexico. Those numbers are necessarily imprecise because the crime itself is designed to produce uncertainty, leaving no corpses, no traces, no explanations, and hence no accountability, end quote. Like everything else we've covered in this episode, the history behind the term disappeared and its application in Latin America is incredibly complex. A broad overview, though, is that the term is generally applied to persons who've gone missing or have been removed from their homes in relation to some political or governmental faction. When someone has disappeared, their families are left in a terrible limbo that can last decades. Though the disappeared are usually assumed dead, there's rarely definite proof or details—when, where, or why. Some of these disappearances occurred silently, giving leaders plausible deniability. Some forced disappearances are conducted relatively openly, with victims taken from their homes or places of work or off the street—a direct and explicit message. In many countries, records were rarely kept, and some missing persons who are not actually part of the disappeared are assumed to be so by their families and thus are not pursued. That's a bare-bones introduction, but it's enough to understand some of the complications that arise. Another enormous category of missing persons, often unrecorded, who then can't be matched to an unidentified body. Even when we narrow our focus down to a single starting point, like Colombia. The unlisted missing and lack of a government-run database can make searching feel like an insurmountable task. But hopefully, it's not going to be that way for much longer because there's a journalist trying to change the whole system. That journalist is Alejandro Munoz, an internationally recognized advocate from Bogota, Colombia. He and his wife currently live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where they run their organization called the International Foundation for Reunion. According to the city paper, Alejandro first became involved with missing persons cases in 1994 when he helped a mother find a now adult son that she hadn't seen in 38 years. As the name of his organization implies, reunification is a major goal of the work which can mean bringing together families separated by war, migration, forced adoption, child abandonment, kidnapping, forced disappearances, and more. The city paper reports that the foundation has taken on 13,000 cases, 2,000 of which have, quote, ended in the cemetery. But, according to the city paper, there have been more than 3,500 reunions, too. We spoke with Alejandro Munoz via email with his wife acting as translator. As he was out of the country, we were unable to record him in person. So with permission, our friend Javier from Pretend Podcast will read the answers here. Please tell us about your career in journalism. How did your work lead you to found the International Foundation for Union?
1: I started in 1982 as a judicial reporter for a tabloid-type Bogota newspaper. And then i worked for several radio stations where i participated in news magazines and from there i just started working on television and what took me to fame in my country and consolidated me as a social journalist was being able to help some people looking for missing relatives was a program called what would you do over five years this program taught me part of what the world of family disappearance can include and that led me to the achievement of more than 1500 reunions At the end of this period of my public life, the television media rejected my proposals to continue searching for missing persons, and then it was necessary to create the foundation for the reunion. It was created in Colombia on April 29, 1999, and after that achievement of more than 13,000 reunions, I moved to the United States where I created the International Foundation for the reunion in 2015.
3: Please tell us about your database. We understand it began as quite small, 100 or so entries. When did you begin? How did you find the initial cases? What are the various ways you receive cases today?
1: In 25 years of work, 13,691 reunions have been carried out satisfactorily. 45% of those, 45% of the located missing, were found to be dead. Another 3,500 cases have been resolved for adoptees born in Colombia or in Latin American countries and have taken especially to the United States and Europe. Thanks to our extensive time spent collecting data today, we have a considerable base that is even consulted by national and international official entities that make specific requests to us to collect our data. People from Colombia and Latin America contact me through the webpage. They fill the application form. With the information of the person they're looking for and leave us their personal data to contact them in case we manage to locate the requested relatives
3: do you have any other unidentified people in your system like the jane doe we're reporting on if so how common are those cases
1: colombia like many other latin countries has few systematized databases so there are very few ways to achieve identification unless you ask people to tell other people about the person that you're looking for. Like in rural communities, through the radio, sending letters to local authorities, or the distribution of flyers or notices in villages and towns. Sometimes the people from those local towns are the ones that identify them, and the familiarity is established by remembrance which we can later check through DNA tests. In cases of identifying dead or mentally disabled people, abandoned in some institution or hospitals, we use the methodology of publishing information in communities whereby, approximation, we know that someone can know about the family of origin of the person we are looking for, which generates information that must be classified, investigated, and then verified. There are about 20 of these cases a year.
3: We've read about Colombia's history of forced disappearances related to armed conflicts. How many of your clients are trying to locate a relative who they know or suspect to have been forcibly disappeared?
1: 25 years ago, when we started searching, 3 out of every 4 cases were reported by relatives as disappeared by force. Today, 25 years later, we observe that that figure has dropped to 1 out of every 4 requested cases have been disappeared by force. We have been able to find out that 50% of these cases reported as forced disappearance cases, A family member has run away from their family due to an intra-family violence conflict and the family that searches for them initially reports forced disappearance once the family accepts what has been the real reason for the disappearance of their father mother brother or son we help in the process of reconciliation and forgiveness to integrate the disappeared family member back into the family of origin
3: Do you ever work to reunite Colombian families with relatives who have immigrated to the United States? And are there any particular difficulties you face in that?
1: I have been doing it for 25 years. There are thousands of adoptees born in Colombia who are now in the United States, and also the violence of Colombia has caused thousands of individuals to migrate to the United States where they may acquire another identity make their own families, and disappear from their relatives back in Colombia without any explanation or apparent cause.
3: To learn more about Mr. Munoz's foundation, please check the episode's show notes. We have included links there. As he discussed in his interview, his primary mission is reuniting families, but he also works to match missing persons to unidentified persons, both in Colombia and abroad. So... We connected Mr. Munoz with Major Bromage. Because the database and records are not publicly accessible, we could not review them ourselves, but he tells us he has dental records, fingerprint records, familial DNA, many things by which the Buford County Sheriff's Office might compare should there be a possible match. As of the writing of this episode, Mr. Munoz was traveling as part of his reunification efforts, but had made initial contact with the sheriff. We'll let you know if there are any updates. It's a good thing that the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office has kept such thorough records and samples because like the other does we've come across, the Beaufort County Jane Doe was cremated probably soon after her autopsy. We discussed this with Major Bromage during our interview. Do you find that m- many does from the 70s, 80s, 90s were cremated? Because we've come across that.
2: Well, okay, unless they have a what they call a pauper's graveyard, is yeah. what they used to call it. Um, yeah, I think you're going to find that the majority are cremated because that's the most economic way. I hate to even say that, but what are you going to do?
0: You'd rather spend resources looking for what happened to that's them. That's right, that's right. Then... Mm-hmm.
2: So, this particular case, uh, she was cremated. But again, uh, there's limited resources for these medical examiners and these coroners to be able to bury bodies and retain these bodies. So cremation was very common.
3: There's another wrinkle in the Beaufort County Jane Doe's case. There is very little DNA evidence left. As in the case of the Golden State Killer, current testing might completely use up the samples they have. So it makes the decision to test or not test something that can't be made lightly.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's just it's evaluating what is a smart practice. Cuz we don't know anything. None of this is called a best pa- pr- none of this is called a best practice at this point. All these science is maybe a smart practice because it's going to generate leads. It's going to generate activity and, and awareness. Of the case and in, in the public, but you know th- these are not best practices yet, because yeah. that's where the criticism comes in. And, and until it is a best practice or recognized in the industry, then it you know you really have to evaluate because there's so many different things you can do possibly.
3: And also, I think I think an important thing um, that the major talked about was also not just throwing the DNA that you have at the new stuff because I'm sure it can be tempting. Sure.
2: And we talk about some newer cases. Well, I don't know that the, it's appropriate for many new cases because, of, you know, a lot of times you're going to have state-of-the-art DNA technology. You're going to have it entered into code, and, and oftentimes it's going to match somebody. Or you had develop a suspect, you're able to obtain their DNA, it's going to match somebody. The older cases are the older cases back in the 70s, 80s, uh, 90s are, are worth looking at for this, this new technology, because... You know, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, this is, this will provide some momentum to the case. That's that's worth it. So it develops interest. It gives the case a kickstart. So is it worth it for that? that? Yes, it is. But again, if you've got that kind of genetic material, the volume of it that we have in this particular case uh, from the 1987 murder, it's a lot more reasonable to do it when you're dealing with a case where it's been evaluated by different scientists several times and you've got very little genetic material left. You really have to consider what's going to be uh, the, the smartest and best practice.
0: Speaking of evolving techniques, um, is her profile eligible to go into GEDmatch? Have you all ever considered doing that? That's and-
2: going to be the same analysis that is done by Parabon and other light companies. And that is a consideration. And that is the next case to be considered from the View County Sheriff's Office for, um, you know, g- genealogy to see if it matches one database. Of course, in the 1987 case, it did not yield anything, you know, other than distant relatives that they say, you know what, that's not worth you following up. That's not close enough to where you can even narrow it down. Uh, so that there was no close familial match in that particular case. In this one, again, limited genetic material left over limited dna extract Um, so we're going to be very very careful i'd rather see a database with 10 million people rather than what they're saying around a million or 1.5 million you know what's the chances one of her family members you know submitted dna for you know to see where they're from for their ancestry yeah i mean so just being very guarded about this case because i mean it's very important to, to hold on to something in case we need it in the future. In case something develops, you're like, wow, I wish I had her DNA to submit to that. Right?
0: And it's that, it's such a hard dance because you have the knowledge that, like, her family is aging. Yeah. So it's, you've got two factors going against each other. The people who know her are are in some ways like aging Mm -hmm. at some point they're going to be on their way out. But on the other hand, the technology is getting so much better. It's like, uh. (laughs) ah. Before I
2: retire, I will definitely pull the trigger on this case and do something else. Thanks. That I think is, oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think these technologies are just amazing to try to further your cases. But again, at what point do you say it's not worth consuming the rest of the the, uh, genetic material uh, from this unidentified woman? Don't I want to kind of wait till the, you know, the, the science is proven?
3: Major Bob Bromage is passionate about many cases. The Buford Doe is not unique in that way. But he's been working on giving her back her name for 25 years. During that time, forensic technology has advanced with incredible rapidity. It's not so hard to imagine that by the time Major Bromage retires, there will be a streamlined process for familial DNA identification, one that won't use up precious samples that are left. In the meantime, perhaps his first major push towards identification, international media coverage, can be tackled again, but this time via social media. But that social media has to expand beyond the United States, beyond Canada, and beyond Mexico and not just in English or Spanish. Digital media, too. Podcasts, newspapers, sociocultural sites. We don't have a magic formula for making that happen, but we're doing our best to find out more. If you have expertise in global communication, crowdsourcing, or a related field and think you can help, please reach out to us at falllinepodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, We'll be working on making connections that can help. Because there's a family somewhere missing the Beaufort County Jane Doe. At least one child. Coworkers. Friends. She may have lived in isolation by necessity, by force, by the dictates of our laws, but she was not invisible. It takes just one person to recognize her. A woman with a light brown complexion, curly dyed red hair brown eyes, double-pierced ears, between 5'2 and 5'4, about 118 pounds, probably in her late 20s to her early 30s. She'd had at least three surgeries, a hysterectomy, a thyroidectomy, and a C-section. Take a moment to view her forensic photos on the Fall Line social media. Can you help to identify her or the person who killed her? If so please contact Major Bob Bromage at the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office at 843-255-3300. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken the time to support our sponsors, use our promo codes, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or via PayPal. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. Thanks also to our friend Javier of Pretend Podcast for lending his voice. If you haven't listened to Pretend, you're missing out on some of the most fascinating stories in podcasting. It's an absolute favorite of ours. Thanks also to Aaron Bowen and Nancy Rivera. The Fall Line is created by Laurie Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Special content advisement by Professor Marcella Fuentes. Music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Up next a two-part series on the Cedartown Jane Doe. And after that, season seven, Carolina Girls will begin soon.